want to remind you that we have some companion CDs in the back. And um, if you have been a partaker of the books that we put out there, I want to encourage you this week to get this book if you have gotten the book. Get it out and read the first three chapters because the things that are covered therein are going to kind of be the topic of our, ne- our teaching for the next uh, one to two weeks. Okay? The Gospel of the Kingdom by George Ladd. Okay? Let's see. All right. With that, we're going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, we are grateful, Lord, that you are God in heaven, that you're the creator of all things, Lord, and that, God, you have made everything uh, for the purpose of manifesting your glory and excellency as God. We thank you and we praise you that you have given us eyes that see these things. And, God, we pray that you'd give us ears that would hear and that you would strengthen our faith that we might hearken to your voice and do as you have commanded. For indeed you have given high and holy commandments that are to be fully obeyed. We thank you for your gracious love in sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to die in our place, God, to pay the penalty for our treason and our sin against you. And we thank you for the precious life of our Lord Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled your holy law, God. And now he gives us this life by faith. We thank you and we praise you. We thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit, whom you have given to dwell within us, to conform us into your image and to always point us to Jesus and to give us understanding, God, and lead us into all truth. We thank you so much. We thank you for all the good things that you're working in our lives. We ask now as we look into your word that you would grant us insight and understanding, that you would give us consolation and comfort in all of our trials and sufferings. And God, we pray that you would strengthen us to be uh, joyful and happy ministers of your gracious and loving gospel. God, I pray that you'd give us boldness to speak, even bold as a lion, God, that we might go out and tell others how to be saved through our Lord Jesus. We thank you for your love to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay. So with that, we're on page 74. Page 74. And I want to just talk briefly to you about this idea that the, the cross, the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, the message that we preach, 74, the gospel, uh, the message of Jesus Christ, two great benefits. Okay? Page 74. Anybody got that one? It was last week's handout. Okay. Well, if you don't have one, uh, you'll have to get you one afterwards. So, um, the idea that the message and the gospel of Jesus Christ really has two fundamental elements. When we talk about the very heart of the gospel, when we talk about being justified before God, the gospel has two fundamental elements, okay? That's what the, this topic is about, and I, I just entitled it Two Great Benefits. And, and, uh, and then, of course, the subtitle on that, The Death and the Life of Christ. And so, if you will, I'm going to read you the last sentence that's on this lesson at the bottom of page 75. Last little paragraph there. It says, then these, these then are the two great benefits of the gospel. Both the life and the death of Christ are reckoned to us by faith, fulfilling God's righteousness wholly and completely for us. In the gospel, therefore, we not only proclaim that Christ died for us, but that he also lived for us. Okay? And that is the point of this lesson today. There's two categories. When we talk about the heart of the gospel, 
And when I say the heart of the gospel family, what I mean is Romans 3, 19 through 28. What we just spent the last three weeks going over. The idea of justification by faith and being justified before God on the basis of what Christ has done by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? That's the heart of the gospel. And, and when we talk about the heart of the gospel, I want you to have this thing that's ever in your mind. There's two categories of sin. And because there's two categories of sin, there is also two great works that Christ has fulfilled in order to justify us before God. And those are fulfilled both in his life and in his death. Or both in his death and in his life. Okay? And the reason I say that is because the gospel is often reduced. The gospel is often reduced to Jesus died for your sins. Okay? Well, let me tell you, Jesus lived for your righteousness. Okay? And so we've got to be careful not to reduce it. Now, we're talking about the nitty-gritty here, just like we did for the last three weeks. We're talking about the heart of the gospel. And, and we're, I'm trying to put some framework in your understanding, a view of the gospel message at its heart, at its core. Okay? And it is to see these two sides of what Christ has done for us, both in his death and in his life. Okay? And, uh, and I believe that that is because there really are these two categories of sin that, that were, that were, um, that were taken care of by Christ, both in his death and in his life, okay? And so with that, let's talk about that. The two terrors of the law. The two terrors of the law. Mankind is guilty of treason against the highest authority that exists, God himself. The Bible describes this treason as sin. Sin was first committed by our father Adam and subsequently passed to all his succeeding generations, Romans 5:12 through 21, having become part of our nature. Here is a brief and helpful definition of sin from Nelson's Bible Dictionary. Sin, lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4, or transgression of God's will, either by omitting to do what God's law requires or by doing what it forbids. The transgression can occur in thought, 1 John 3.15, word, Matthew 5.22, or deed, Romans 1.32. So sin can occur in thought, word, or deed. Okay. Sin is not represented in the Bible as the absence of good or as an illusion that stems from our human limitations. Sin is portrayed as real and positive evil. Okay? So one thing to consider when you think about evil, you know, don't necessarily think about ghouls and goblins and demons and Satan. Okay? Although all those things are evil and representative of evil, really what evil is is simply sin. The e- e- evil is the antithesis of good. Okay? So uh, sin is evil. Okay, and evil is sin. Are you with me? And so, in the Bible, sin is portrayed as real and positive evil. Sin is more than unwise, inexpedient, calamitous behavior that produces sorrow and distress. It is rebellion against God's law, the standard of righteousness. And since God demands righteousness, sin must be defined in terms of mankind's relationship to God. Sin is something that man does against God. You understand? Sin is a transgression of God's person. When you sin, you sin against God. You personally offend God when you sin. Okay? Understand? It's a very important thing. And so when we think about the nature of sin, we're saying that it's defined in, in, in man's relationship to God. Sin is something that man does in relationship to God. It's, it's, it's the only other category it would fall in is man's relationship to man. But even that is secondary. 
right? So it is possible to sin against your brother or even maybe to sin against your own body, right? However, primarily, right, David says, against thee and thee only have I sinned, right? Psalm 51. And, of course, there he's repenting of these great sins that he's committed against Bathsheba and against Uriah and the whole kingdom, right? And, and yet he says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. And his point is, is that the primary issue of sin is defined in David's relationship to God. When David sinned by doing what he did, he transgressed God's law and he transgressed God's person. Are you with me? Okay. Sin is thus the faithless rebellion of the creature against the just authority of his creator. For this reason, breaking God's law at any point involves transgression at every point. Of course, the reference there, James 2.10. Now, in regard to how we have sinned against God by transgressing his holy law, there are basically two categories of sin that we are guilty of. There are sins of omission, where we fail to do what God has required of us, and sins of commission, where we do something God has forbidden us to do. Okay? So there's two kinds of sin, right? As it said there in, in Nelson's Bible Dictionary, either by omitting what God's law requires or by doing what it forbids. Okay? So if the Lord says... Thou shalt not take the name of thy Lord thy God in vain, right? Then it's forbidding you to take God's name in vain. So that if you take God's name in vain, you have transgressed his law. Right? Or the law might say, love thy neighbor as thyself. Right? And so you, you walk along the road, and there's the man beaten up, half dead, laying on the side of the road, and you walk right, right on by your pious self with your nose in the sky, and you leave your neighbor there to die. Right? Thus you have omitted doing what God's law has required you to do. Right? You with me? Whether he's a Jew or a Samaritan. Well... The reason why there's these two kinds of sins is because there's two kinds of precepts in the Word of God. There is, uh, be, this is because God's law has both preceptive requirements and penal sanctions. You know, I always, I'll be, I've been talking about this for some time. I, I mentioned it when we were talking about the atonement. Really, they're, they're all precepts, okay? But when we talk about preceptive requirements, we're simply talking about things that God's Word commands us to do, okay? When we talk about penal sanctions, we're talking about things that God's law forbids us to do. And in the forbidding of us to do those things, it imposes penalties, right? So when we talk about the word penal, you have the word, the letters T-Y, and we're talking about penalty. Okay? These are sanctions. <laughs> right? In other words, God's law forbids us to do certain things and then warns us of an impending judgment. Are you with me? And so, if you will, these are these two categories of the law. And so I made that little chart there, sin. It's a transgression of God's law in thought, word, or deed. And there are two different types. There are perceptive requirements and penal sanctions. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. Is that clear? Does everybody understand that? Any questions on that point? No? Okay. All right. Judicially speaking, therefore. Okay, now I want you to go back with me to Romans 3. And the terms are... Legal terms, speaking about courtrooms, and speaking about judgment before a judge, okay? So when I say judicially speaking, I'm talking about our relationship to God as far as it concerns God's judgment, okay? Judicially speaking, there's these two categories of sin. Therefore, we are um, 
guilty in both aspects of transgression against the law, and we have need to be justified before God on both accounts. You understand what we're saying? So let's just say that, uh, okay, we, we're, we show up at the judgment bar of God, and there we are, and uh, God brings up all of the times we did what his law forbade, forbade us to do. Okay? And so then God pronounces the penalty. The wages of this sin is death. Right? And, uh, and so for all the times that we did what God forbid us to do, we have a debt. Let's just say that debt is a certain price. Okay? And, of course, we know in, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's come along and he's paid a debt that he didn't know. Instead, he paid a debt that I owed. Right? And let's just say he comes along and he cancels out that debt completely. Okay? Well, now my debt for all the penal sanctions of the law of God has been met. But guess what? I'm sorely lacking. Why? Because I have fallen short of the glory of God in all the things that he asked me to do that I never did. That's why Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You see, I didn't do everything he asked me to do. Are you with me? And so, if you will, we have need to be justified before God on both of these accounts. Are you with me? Family, this is an imperative thing for you to understand when you are evangelizing and witnessing to people and they have questions about the gospel and they have questions about how they're justified before God. This is an imperative thing to understand about the heart of the gospel. Okay? Because people have all kinds of wild ideas about how good they are before God. Right? And so when we're explaining what Christ has done for us, we can't reduce the gospel to only Jesus died for your sins. Okay? Because that doesn't do it for you. Without the life of Christ being imputed to your account and reckoned to your account, you will be bankrupt before God on the day of judgment. Are you with me? So it's a very important thing to understand. Okay, so then, even if our sin debt was paid in regard to the penal sanctions, we would still not have fulfilled what God has required of us, and therefore our righteousness before God is found lacking. For this great treason against God, then, the whole world is accountable to God, having sinned and fallen short of his glory. Okay, And this is what we read in Romans 3 where it said in verse 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And then again there in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, This is what the law has done. The law has made it crystal clear to us what sin is. Remember, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Not only did the law come along and say, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, but it also said, Love thy neighbor as thyself. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy mind and with all thy soul. Right? Deuteronomy 6.5 Amen? Are you with me? And so, uh, it's very important to understand this. We have transgressed God's holy law in every point so that we are subject to the wrath of God and the curses of the law and the ultimate penalty for sin, which is death. Okay? Now, take this as well. Okay? We're talking here about the terrors of the law. We're talking about how the law has condemned us on both of these accounts. Okay? Now, there's no way for me to be able to explain to you the degree of offense that sin is before God. Okay? Except to give you the illustration that God gives us in the Scripture through the warning that is held out in the Gospel. Okay? And so, the, by, the, the, the Gospel says, the wages of sin is death. Are you with me? And what is that death? 
Well, I want to read a passage of Scripture for you, and I think every Christian really ought to know this passage of Scripture. It's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because I think there we get a very vivid demonstration of what death is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And here really is a passage on eschatology, and Paul is talking about how Christ is going to come back and he's going to rescue the persecuted Christians in Thessalonica. And he, he, by way of that, makes reference as to what's going to happen when Christ returns. Okay? But look how here, how the judgment and wrath of God upon unbelievers is described in this short passage by Paul and, and what it actually is in the nature of its substance. In other words, what is the wrath of God? What is this death that we talk about, which is the wages of sin? Starting in verse 7, there Paul says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Okay, so when Paul talks about the judgment and the wrath of God that is to come down on the heads of those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, he describes it as the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. In other words, they will be shut out from the presence of God. And Jesus said that place is outer darkness. It's outer. Why is it outer? It's outside of the presence of the glory of God. There's no light in that place. There's no light of the goodness of God in that place at all. It's outer darkness. Jesus says where the worm never dies. Right? In other words, you will continually and perpetually be dead there. Right? And the fire is never quenched. This is what Paul means when he says the penalty of eternal destruction. Okay, it's described elsewhere by Jesus in Matthew 25:46 as eternal torment or eternal punishment. Okay, now why am I telling you all this? Because I'm trying to express to you the degree of offense that sin is to holy God. Okay, so that if somebody dies, they are shut out from the presence of God, and there they will be forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and it is absolutely final, and there is no rescue from that whatsoever. And that is the just wage of sin, family. It's beyond our comprehension. It is absolutely the most terrible thing that could possibly be imagined by anyone. Okay? That is the penalty and the consequence of sin. And that is what men and women are being saved from when they believe the gospel and are saved. Are you with me? That's why it's important for us to be good ministers of this gospel and know it inside and out. And know, it how, know how it applies to the lives of those to whom we are witnessing. Are you with me? We need to be able to articulate this. It's the most important thing that we know how to articulate, period. Are you with me? Okay? I understand. In the modern church, the gospel is something that is obscured, even eclipsed. Okay? But let it not be said of us. Okay? Let's get the main thing, the main thing, and let's keep it the main thing. Right? Are you with me? And, and the message here in the scripture, the message in the Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? And the heart of the gospel is defined in man's relationship to God and what has, what has happened when man has transgressed against God. And what God has done about it in order to save man by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Namely, right, that Christ has both paid the penalty of every time we did what God forbid us to do. And then he went and lived a perfectly righteous life, which is reckoned to us by faith in Christ. 
so that God sees us as having perfectly fulfilled his holy law in all of its preceptive requirements. Okay? So when we talk about the terrors of the law, family, let me tell you something. It is something to be terrified of. I could stand here for three weeks trying to explain it to you, and I would not even touch the surface of how severe it is. Are you with me? So it's an important thing for us to understand. Um, and, and so, if you will, let me try to sum it up in one statement. The, the severity of, of sin in its offense against God is seen clearly in the just penalty that God assigns to sin, which is namely death. Are you with me? That tells us how bad it is. And you see, we have such a tendency to take it so lightly. All of us, every single one of us, take sin lightly, far more lightly than we should. Are you with me? I'm telling you, it is a terrible, terrible thing. And, and this is one of the reasons why so many people think that uh, Christianity puts forth an unjust God. It's because he, man has no ability to comprehend the depth of his own depravity and the degree to which his sin is an offense against the holy God and the degree to which that sin also is evil in and of its own nature. Are you with me? Okay. That's all the bad news, isn't it? Well, it is in this dreadful state that all mankind abide naturally, and this explains the great need for salvation. Mankind needs to be saved from sin and death. Can I get an amen? amen? Mankind needs to be saved from sin and death or he is going to perish. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Amen? Are you with me? gives new meaning to the word perish, doesn't it? It is from this state of sin and death that Jesus Christ saves to all who call upon him for salvation, and this salvation is the good news held out in the gospel. Amen? Which is what it says there in Romans 6.23. <clears throat> for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Again, the gospel summed up in a sentence, right? When someone places faith in Christ, they enter into a state of justification before God, which is wholly complete in both aspects of the law. Through faith in Christ, people can be declared just or righteous in the sight of God. Okay? So here's the message we're telling people. We're saying the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? And according to Romans 3, that that comes through faith. Right? To all who believe, for there is no distinction. So we're telling people, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And what will happen there? Well, here's what will happen. They enter into a state of justification whereby both of these aspects of the law have been wholly and completely fulfilled. Are you with me? That's what happens. And I want to tell you, the salvation that Christ has worked is perfect. And I want to emphasize, it's wholly complete. It's adequate. It's the, it's, the, it's the atonement that God provided and put forth as a propitiation to reconcile us to himself. Don't you think God knew what he was doing? That when Christ did what he did, it was going to, sa it was going to satisfy the wrath of God? You bet it, it was, and it did. And that's what we receive by faith. We receive a perfect satisfaction. We receive a perfect righteousness of a perfect Savior. Are you with me? And we can trust in that. Christ is worthy of our faith. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our adoration. Are you with me? And he was worthy to, to, to pay the penalty that the law held against me and not only that, he was worthy to give me a righteousness and preceptive requirements before God that's absolutely whole and absolutely complete. Okay? 
Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. That righteousness is mine. Reckon to me by faith. Amen? Okay, so we sum that up in these two theological terms, substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness. Okay? And, of course, we've talked about this at some length or degree. But I just want you to see these two aspects of the law and how they were met and fulfilled by Christ. Now, this is the great good news that is the substance of the gospel in its most basic form. Family, this is the heart of the gospel. Okay? That Christ fulfilled the law. And in so doing, he has covered over our transgressions completely. And he, he fulfilled the law in both of these aspects that we speak of. That, that is, that all who believe in Christ can be justified before God, not by any merit of their own or works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ only. That's what Paul says in Galatians 2.16. You recall there he's refuting the Judaizers in Galatia. The book of Galatians is Paul's refutation, refuting the false doctrine of the Judaizers, okay? They were some of the first and most profound heretics. And what they were teaching was that faith in Christ is good, yeah, he's the Messiah, but you've got to do all these other things according to the law in order to be righteous before God. Paul says, hogwash. Okay? And so... The heart of the book of Galatians is chapter 2, verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Amen? Amen. Salvation or justification is by faith. Okay? This is called justification by faith. This justification is a declarative act on God's part towards us on the basis of what Jesus Christ has accomplished in his life and death. Now, does everybody remember this little diagram that Carol gave us right here on being reconciled to God? I want to point something out to you. The little section there where it says justification. It's a declarative act where God declares us righteous... Okay? Based on the merits of what Christ has done in redemption. He propitiated the wrath of God, and He redeemed us, and on that basis, God justifies us. How does He do that? He declares us righteous. Not that we were righteous in and of ourselves, but that Christ Himself is our righteousness. And on the basis of faith, God reckons to us the righteousness of Christ. Not by the works of the law. Amen? Are you with me? Okay, that's what um, justification is, and that's how it's received. When we trust in Christ, we are declared righteous by God because of Christ's merit. Christ's merit is wholly complete before God because he paid the penal sanctions of the law in his death, and he fulfilled the perceptive requirements of the law in his life, having perfectly carry out, carried out all of God's precepts in his lifetime. He never omitted to do what God had required, and he never did anything that was forbidden by God. Amen? Yep. Amen? Amen. Listen, Jesus is the perfect, spotless lamb. Are you with me? Unblemished. Therefore, on this basis, God's law has been fulfilled in Christ. And God offers this justification to all who have faith in Christ, as we read in Romans 3, verses 21 and following. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Jesus Christ paid the penalty of sins by dying as a sacrifice in our place. Okay, now I want to talk to you about these penal sanctions and, and the, the debt that we owe to God because we have done what He has forbidden us to do. Okay? Let's talk about how Christ met that. We're going to call it 
substitutionary atonement. All right? And you remember our lessons on the atonement. I just want to remind you what this is. This is called substitutionary atonement as discussed earlier in our lesson on pages 39 through 50. This atonement was pictured in the Old Testament sacrifice. Therefore, Christ is our sacrifice, our Passover lamb that died vicariously. And remember what that means? That he died for us? That it was a very personal thing that Christ did? And he died as a substitute? Or he died in our place or in our stead, right? Christ was a vicarious substitute, a sacrifice. He was sacrificed for us, okay? A reference on page 45. Therefore, Christ died as a substitute, a sacrifice to pay the debt of death, which was owing to God because of our sins. God reckons Christ's payment of death to us through faith, and on this basis, cancels the debt we owed because of the law's penal sanctions. Okay? Now, I want you to just get this little part right here. This is what we mean when we say Jesus died for our sins. Okay? He died to pay the debt that we owe, the penalty, the payment. Remember, redemption is a price. It's a monetary term. And so Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, puts it like this. Now look at how Colossians describes the gospel in terms of legal terms, talking about the law and talking about what Christ did. He says there, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. You know what that is, right? That's the penal sanctions of the law. That's the law that has these sanctions applied against us. When you do this, you shall die, right? This is what Christ did. He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. You see that? And he goes on, which was hostile to us. He has what? Taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. You understand? It's a very vivid picture of what Christ did for us. He canceled out the debt which was held against us by the holy law of God. It's canceled out, family. Right here. <laughs> Paid in full. Right? Amen? Amen? Okay. Or Colossians 1, verse 21 and 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, the Bible's talking about what's happened to you now that Christ has died and his death has been applied. You are what? Without blemish and Free from accusation. Why? Because he canceled out the certificate of debt. He canceled it out. It's not left anymore. There's nothing there that said, Sean did all these things that God forbid him to do. No, no. Christ paid that penalty in full. Now what? I'm free from accusation. Are you with me? A devil can accuse me till the cows come home. But Jesus died for me. You understand? And now the Bible says I'm without blemish, holy in his sight. You understand? I've been reckoned with Christ's payment of my sins. It's paid in full. I can go free. Amen? In regard to the penal sanctions of the law. In the same way, God reckons to us the perfectly righteous life of Christ through faith. So that in Christ, God sees us as having fulfilled all the perceptive requirements of the law as well. This is called imputation. Okay? Remember that. We're going to talk more about it when we get to justification by faith. But Christ's perfect life is credited to those who have faith in him. So Paul would say, for instance, in Philippians 3, 9 and 10, that I might be found in him 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Right? You're familiar with that passage in Philippians where Paul is saying, I was a Jew of Jews from the tribe of Benjamin, right? According to the law, I was yeah, blameless in my uh, keeping of the law, right? Paul boasting in his Pharisaical Judaism, right? He says, I count it rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why? Because in Christ... I'm not found before God having a righteousness of my own, but a foreign righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to Christ, right? And is reckoned to me by faith, he says. Romans 4, 5 and 6, or verse 5 says, But to the one who does not work, you understand? To the guy that's not working day and night to fulfill the law of God, but instead is believing, right? but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. You understand? Here's how that works. I realize I am utterly ungodly before God. You with me? And that all my life I've been violating this law of God. But I know something about God. He justifies the ungodly. How does he do that? Through faith. By trusting in Christ. Do you understand? Because by the works of the law, I'm never going to be justified. God reckons it to me through faith. Amen? These then are the two great benefits of the gospel. Both the life and the death of Christ are reckoned to us by faith, fulfilling God's righteousness wholly and completely for us. In the gospel, therefore, we, we not only proclaim that Christ died for us, but that he also live for us. Amen? Amen? Okay, so this is a real simple thing. I want you to go away from this lesson understanding that there's two kinds of sin, that we're all guilty before God on both accounts, and that Christ wholly and completely meets both of those for us in the gospel. We call it substitutionary atonement and imputed righteousness. Or, Jesus died for me, and Jesus lived for me. Are you with me? Okay, alright. So, now, I want to get your mind churning for our lesson next week. So we're going to shift gears here, okay? And I want you to uh, think about the gospel in its eschatological aspects. Okay? So, if you will, you remember earlier on when we were defining the nature of the gospel, I told you that the gospel confers on us a king and a kingdom. And, and that that kingdom has now broken into time and space, but has not yet reached its climax in regard to what its fullness will be in the earth and, and when it is completely fulfilled. Okay? And so if you will, that's, that's portrayed in this diagram I gave you, the kingdom of God now but not yet. This diagram actually is a modification of a diagram I took right out of this book. Okay? I've, I've added a few things to it to try to describe the nature of these different periods in time. But you need to understand something about the gospel, okay? The gospel is all of those things we've been talking about at its heart, but it's also con it's, it's, con it's conferring on us a kingdom. It's like... Nebuchadnezzar riding up to the gates of Jerusalem with all of his army and they got the gates shut in and he says, look, look, I've come here, I'm going to take this place, I'm going to be the king. You can either surrender to me now and I'll go easy on you or I can take it by force. Take your choice. You with me? If you will, the gospel is in a sense very similar we are heralding the message. Okay? Jesus is the king. He's coming to take the kingdom by force. Surrender now. Right? And it will go well with you. Or rebel against him and have him take it by force and you become his bitter enemy. What's it going to be? 
Are you with me? And so, if you will, you need to think of the gospel in those terms. It's a warning. It's a warning that the kingdom of God and his rule has now come. It is now at hand. And he is commanding all men everywhere to repent. Do you know that when Jesus started his public ministry, these were the first words out of his mouth? He said this. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. You understand what he was saying? He was telling men to stop sinning. You understand? He says, look, God's done with this sin thing. He's had enough. Are you with me? The king has come and he has proclaimed, he has heralded his message. His message is, look, I've flung wide open the doors of mercy. And all who want to come in and find refuge can find refuge under the shelter of the king's authority. But the way you come in is through repentance from sin. Understand? And so, if you will, this gospel age, this time of the church age, is now the servants of God have gone out and they are inviting all to come in to the feast. And they're inviting all to come in willingly and make themselves subject to the king. Because the king is coming very soon. And when he comes, he's going to take the kingdom by force and he's going to banish all his enemies. Are you with me? And so, if you will, the gospel then is a warning. It's not just an offer of salvation, but it's a warning of damnation. Are you with me? So, we can't just reduce the gospel to Jesus died for you and Jesus lived for you, and all of the benefits of of, uh, God's favor are available for you in Christ, without telling people that if you don't do that, You have made yourself a bitter enemy of the king who is coming soon and you are going to give an account of your life to him because he is also your judge. And he is also claimed to be king. And he says that his rule and his authority reign. And if you don't obey him, you're going to be shut out from his presence forever. You understand? The gospel is a warning. It is a warning. And so... um, I want you to consider before we, we look at the scriptures on that some things that we've talked about before. But if you if you have your Bible lesson there, turn back to page twenty. Is it twenty? I want to remind you of a few things the Bible says about the kingship of Jesus. Okay, if you don't have page 20, don't be alarmed. I'm going to read it to you, and it's available on the web. Okay, and then next week I'm going to take off with some new material and talk to you about this in relationship to the gospel. But I want to remind you of some of the fundamental things that the scripture says about Jesus. In, in order of the kingdom and it coming and not having yet reached its climax. Okay, so if you will... Um, the Bible very clearly sets forth in very clear terms that Jesus is going to be king over all the earth and that he is going to rule as Lord. Remember that the term Lord that is used of Jesus in the New Testament is the same term that in the Old Testament is spoken of God. Are you understand what I'm saying? Check me out on this. Uh, I've talked to you before about it. But this term Lord... I believe it's the term kurios in the Greek, is the same word that in the Greek New Testament of the, uh, in the Greek uh, Old Testament translation called the Septuagint, okay, is the exact same word that is used for the Lord Almighty, okay? And so when we talk, when we talk about Jesus in a New Testament sense, we are ascribing to him the word Lord, which is the word that speaks of the covenant name of God in the Old Testament. Are you with me? So, I want to just give you that as background. I'm going to read this to you. Jesus is the ruler of the nations. What is more is that the man Christ Jesus will reign as king over all the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. Jesus will be the ruler of the nations of the earth, and all the nations will come and worship the Lord and acknowledge his lordship. As it says in Psalm 86, All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and they shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and dost wondrous deeds, thou alone art God. 
Or in Psalm 22:27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before thee, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. There will come a day, yet future, when God will establish Christ's throne and kingdom, and he will rule all other nations. His kingdom will never end or be destroyed. Daniel 7.27 says, Then the sovereignty and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion will serve and obey him. Or in Daniel 2.44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Let me tell you, that hasn't happened yet. Let me tell you another thing that hasn't happened yet. All the nations coming and worshiping before the Lord God Almighty. That hasn't happened yet along with a whole bunch of other prophecies I'm going to read for you right now. In this kingship, all the nations of the earth will come and pay homage to Jesus the King. This is God's warning to all the kings of the earth. Psalm 2, verses 8 through 12. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment and take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There, the scripture clearly saying that Christ will receive the nations as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as his possession. Christ will yield exceeding great power over them, and they shall live under his rule or be destroyed. He will judge the nations with justice, and they will obey him. Psalm 110, verses 5 through 6. The Lord is at, the Lord is at thy right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. And again, the prophecy speaks of the Lord being the judge among the nations and shattering kings in his wrath. The kings of the earth will be in subjection to him and will serve him. The extent of this rule will be worldwide, including men from every tribe and language. Psalm 72, uh, verse 10. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Sheba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him. Or in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Or in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 16 through 20. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went out against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that... Whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. And it will be the plague which with the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Question, has that happened yet? No, it hasn't. Let me tell you, soon and very soon. His throne will be located in Jerusalem, and from Mount Zion, Jesus the King will reign over all the earth. At this time, God will restore his people Israel to himself, and they will dwell in the land of Israel, which he promised to them. Specifically speaking, Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 40 and 41. For on my holy mountain... 
on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, there the whole house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I shall accept them, and there I shall seek your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your holy things. Or in Micah chapter 4, verse 7, I will make the lame a remnant, and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now and forever. Or in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 21 and 22, And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. There, God's people Israel will have peace, as the Prince of Peace, their Messiah, has brought them great security. Like it says in Zechariah chapter 14, verses 8 through 11. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and on the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Gibba to Rimon south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise, I'm sorry, from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And people will live in it and there will no more be any curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Get the point yet? <laughs> so it will be in the latter days, Jesus the King will be highly exalted in the sight of all the nations and kingdoms, and they will give him glory and serve him. The, this will happen during the millennium, the thousand-year period of Christ's physical rule upon the earth with his saints. During this time, Satan will be bound and have no influence upon mankind. Of course, that's Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Toward the end of the millennium, there will be a final rebellion against Christ by the nations, at which time he will destroy them forever, along with Satan. This will be the final doom of Satan and all the wicked, and the eternal state will be ushered in. According to Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them all. And the devil who was deceived was thrown into the lake of fire, and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever in this eternal state there will no longer be any sin in God's kingdom and the inhabitants of earth will rest in peace forever as according to Revelation chapter 21 verses 24 through 27 and the nations shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it and in the daytime for there shall be no night there its gates shall never be closed and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, <clears throat> those are a few ways that the Bible talks about the kingdom that is being conferred upon us. And I'm specifically pointing out some things to kind of get your mind turning, of things that have not yet happened. 
so that this kingdom that we preach is a kingdom that is now proclaiming and heralding the rule of God and the rule of God's authority and telling the rebels to come in and willingly submit. But there is coming a future day when he is going to take this kingdom by force and he is going to put all of the rebels under his foot by force. Are you with me? And so I want to be able to give you some background on that. I'm not going to read this section again. It's back in your lesson on pages uh, 20 through 22. There's another short section about the kingship of Jesus on pages 26 through... 27, and uh, then with that, I'm going to be talking about the gospel in relation to the king and the kingdom, okay? And so we'll start with that next week. Shall we pray? God, our Father, we thank you that this world, even though now is filled with chaos, God, that you have promised to come and to restore all things. And Lord, we eagerly, eagerly look forward to the day when you will come and bring righteousness to the earth. When you will put all rebels asunder, God. And when you will establish righteousness and the people of the earth will love. And they will live in peace. And they will serve one another. And they will glorify you with their mouth. And the earth will be the home of righteousness. God, we look forward to that day, even as it is in heaven. And so we pray, O God, with our Lord Jesus, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And come quickly, Lord, and let us see it. Yes, every eye, let us see it, God, even with our own eyes, the kingdom. Lord, we look eagerly forward to it. We thank you, we honor you, and we bless you for such a promise because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen.